And so it's kind of fitting that you might know my dad, but not know me, because the topic that I want to take up tonight is that of the relationship between a father and a son, and the kind of conversations that fathers can have with their sons. And now women, don't close your ears, because there's going to be application to mothers and daughters found within our topic tonight. And so if you will, you can open with me to the book of 1 Timothy. The book of 1 Timothy, and it's my aim to get through chapter 1 of 1 Timothy. Now I do understand that you have studied in your Bible study over the past few weeks or months as it may be the book of 1 Timothy, and now you've moved on to Titus, but this is a passage that I've been greatly enjoying in my own personal study, and so I'm excited to go through the first chapter with you this evening. So before we begin, let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the love that you have for us people. We thank you so much for the relationship that you offer us between yourself through the Lord Jesus, that we might be called children of God, sons and daughters of God, because of the work of the Lord Jesus on that cross. And so, Father, we thank you for a time that you have set aside for us to gather together and to take a look at your word. We ask that as we look at the relationship between Paul and his son Timothy, that we might be encouraged to live more like the Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And so, as I hinted at earlier, the relationship that we will look at is between Paul, the spiritual father of Timothy. And we're going to see that in the first few verses of chapter 1 of Timothy, 1 Timothy, that Paul calls Timothy his son. And this is a special kind of a relationship between a father and a spiritual son. But before we get into actually reading our passage, I want to give a little bit of background, and I'm sure many of us are familiar with the relationship between Paul and Timothy, but just as way of review and by setting the um, stage for what we're going to talk about tonight, I just want to briefly give an overview of how Paul and Timothy have interacted up to the point that we see them here. And so we know Paul. He was a man who originally was named Saul. He was a persecutor of the Jews. He was one who was full of zeal. He loved serving God, but the way that he went about doing it was not quite right. One day as he was going on his way out to persecute more Christians, he was stopped by the Lord Jesus himself, knocked off of his animal, turned around, and recommissioned into the work of the Lord Jesus. And so he begins traveling with some companions. It starts out with Barnabas, and then they go on a missionary trip, and they go and do some great work, and they come back, and they're ready to go and check up on everyone that they had planted the seeds of the gospel with, those small churches scattered around the world, when they divided over the idea of bringing John Mark along, who had jumped ship from them and left them mid-journey the last time. And so Paul and Barnabas separate, and Paul takes Silas along with him, and they go out, and they're traveling around together, and they come to the area of Derby and Lystra. And when they come to Derby and Lystra, Paul notices a young man there. His name is Timothy. And Paul notices about this man that he had been raised by a believing mother who happened to be Jewish. He also had a father who was Greek. But there was something that we see in Acts chapter 16 about Timothy. And that's he was well spoken of by all of the brothers in Lystra and Iconium. And so these surrounding churches, the older men had paid attention to this young man, had noticed a gift in him and spoke well of him. 
And so Paul, hearing the good news that had been shared about Timothy, and also recognizing that he could always use another companion on one of his trips, takes Timothy, circumcises him, and brings him along. Timothy becomes, at this point in time, his son in the faith. Another word for this is a disciple. And so Paul takes Timothy, and they begin traveling together. So it's now Paul and Silas and Timothy. And as Paul lives his life, as he goes about serving the Lord, ministering to others, checking up on the churches that he and Barnabas had planted, he brings along this young man with him. He models life for him, brings him along, allows him to see everything, teaches him good doctrine, and then at a certain point in time, he is ready to commission Timothy out into his own ministry. And so as we approach the book of 1 Timothy, we see at some point in time, Paul had gone through Ephesus and had dropped Timothy off there and continued on his way to Macedonia. And now he is writing a letter to his son in the faith, Timothy, encouraging him on. And so this evening, I want to talk about Paul's calling, Paul's command to Timothy, Paul's conversion, and Paul's charge to Timothy. I want to pay special attention this evening to the type of conversation that Paul has with this son in the faith, Timothy. I want to pay special attention to it because it will indicate the kind of conversations that you and I as believers might consider having with one another. It raises the bar, it sets a standard high as to the type of relationships that we form within our assemblies and the types of conversations that you and I have with one another. And so we're going to use Paul as an example of that as he communicates with Timothy. I think you're going to notice by the end of it that the type of communication that Paul has with Timothy is serious. It's edifying. It's encouraging. And above all, it's beneficial to this young man, Timothy. As we look deeper into it, we're going to find that the conversation that Paul has with Timothy is real. It's open and it is marked by humility. And so with that, allow me to read 1 Timothy chapter 1, and then we'll take it piece by piece as we look at the relationship and the conversation. Beginning of, in verse 1 of 1 Timothy chapter 1, we read, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the commandment of God our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ our hope. To Timothy, a true son in the faith, Grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine. Nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification which is in faith. Now the purpose of the commandment is love, from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith from which some, having strayed, have turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, and if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has enabled me, 
because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although I, formerly, I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. However, for this reason I obtain mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show all longsuffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies made previously concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, having faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected, concerning the faith have suffered shipwreck, of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So I've divided the message I have here into four categories. The first two verses is the calling, and this is Paul's calling. The next few verses are the command that Paul gives to Timothy. Following that is the conversion story that Paul shares with Timothy. And then finally, he ends with a charge to his son in the faith. So let's look at verses 1 and 2 together. This is Paul's calling. Paul starts out by writing this letter to Timothy, saying that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ by the commandment of God our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ our hope. Now, if there's one person on earth who probably didn't need this introduction, I assume it is Timothy. Paul, though, writes to Timothy, and he reminds Timothy who he is. He declares to him that he is an apostle. An apostle is one who is sent. It's a sent one. In essence, it's an evangelistic missionary. We know it from the book of Ephesians and others that there are evangelists, there are apostles, there are prophets, and there are teachers, all equipped to equip the saints for the work of ministry. But Paul, wanting to remind his son in the faith, Timothy, of who he is, declares to him that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. And this reminds us back to the conversion story that we mentioned earlier, where Paul is on the road to Damascus, and he is confronted face to face with the Lord Jesus himself. And so the Lord Jesus, after knocking him to the ground, blinding him for a short amount of time, takes the time to come to Paul. He takes him and he commissions him back into the work. But when I think about this in the relationship that Paul had with Timothy or Timothy had with Paul, it's almost completely redundant for Paul to say this. Timothy had met him. Timothy had been discipled by him. Timothy had traveled with him. And yet Paul still finds it necessary to remind Timothy that he is an apostle. Now what that says to me is that we can never repeat too often the call that God has given to each of us. If you know what your calling is, if you know what your ministry is, then there are people around you who need to hear this. This is Paul's calling card. Paul knew without a shadow of a doubt who he was and who he was in Christ. And so to anyone who was willing to listen to him, Paul would tell them that I am an apostle of Jesus Christ. What is your ministry? What do you talk about when you have an opportunity to talk with someone who is younger than you? 
When they say, hey, what do you do for a living? Is it anything as noble as this? And it's not about being religious, and it's not about making up some title to sound fluffy, but there are young people looking up to older people, wanting to know what it's like to go on for Christ. And so Paul unashamedly at the introduction to this letter to a well-known brother and son says, I am an apostle of Jesus Christ. I know who I am in the faith, and I want you to know who you are in the faith as well. An apostle of Jesus Christ by the commandment of God. Paul had kind of a unique situation here, I think, in that God himself, through the Lord Jesus, came to him and commissioned him to his work. Remember when um, God sends, I think, is it Ananias or Ananias to go and to lay his hands on Paul and to pray for him so he can receive his sight back? He says, no, Lord, I've heard what terrible things he's done to the Christians, and that's why he's here in Damascus. But God assures him that he is a chosen vessel of mine, and he, I will show him what great things he must suffer for my sake. Then he has a conversation with Paul, one-on-one, commissions him into the work. This is a commandment of God to Paul. Paul unmistakably knew what God wanted him to be doing. Do you know what God wants you to be doing here on this earth? And so we see here God as God, our Savior. And normally in the New Testament, we see that God is referred to, but the Lord Jesus is the one who is referred to as the Savior. But it is very true here that God is the Savior because he is the one who desires all men to be saved. And he is the one who so loved the world that he sent his Son to die so that those who would believe in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So God the Father is the Savior. Jesus Christ is also the Savior. They are one together in that. But we see here the Lord Jesus Christ is our hope. And there are other passages, namely in 1 Peter that I think of, where we see that our hope comes from Jesus Christ raised from the dead. Paul, when thinking about the one who saved him, the one who commissioned him, the one who gives him a purpose and a hope, thinks of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And you and I, if we are believers tonight, know that our salvation comes from God and that our hope and the reason for our endurance in the faith is because of the Lord Jesus Christ, because he died for us, because he rose again, and because he has given us work to do, and because we know that he is coming back for us one day. That spurs us on, and that is what... Paul is going to use as the foundation from which to encourage his son in the faith, Timothy, to continue this work. Verse 2, to Timothy, a true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. Now when I think of the relationship between Paul and Timothy, Paul was not his actual father. We know that his father was a Greek. But Paul, given the spiritual input that he was able to have into Timothy's life, took it upon himself to call Timothy a son. Now I look around at a group here and there are men and there are women who have the opportunity to find younger men and women who they might invest in so that they might call you their father or their mother in the Lord and that you might call your son or your daughter in the faith. There are young people like myself and others who are looking for spiritual guides, who are looking for people who can come alongside of us and point us on into the way that we might live. And so we see that in an amazing relationship between Paul and Timothy here. And so as Paul writes to him, he says, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, when we look at other 
letters in the New Testament that Paul and even others write to groups of believers, normally what they write is grace and peace be multiplied to you. But there's kind of a phenomenon in when Paul or another writer writes to an individual, he adds the word mercy there. Now, grace, of course, is this unmerited favor that we receive from God. But mercy is the essence of not getting what you deserve. Now, peace is this indwelling contentment that we're able to have in God. And so why would Paul want Timothy to be endowed with mercy? I think it's very much so because Timothy is fallible man. And as a minister, he is going to try as hard as he can to live a godly and holy life, and he's trying to do what Paul commands him to do and live in a way that pleases God, but he is going to fall and he is going to make mistakes. And so as a minister of Christ, Paul grants him mercy. He begs on behalf of God that mercy might be shown to this bumbling fool that God has commissioned into the ministry. And so when we look around at the younger people, when we look around at those who we might consider our sons and daughters in the faith, we need to recognize, just as any child, that they're going to make mistakes. And if God is willing to grant them mercy, so should we. And having that mentality going into a relationship like that is probably going to save a lot of heartache. So this is Paul's calling. This is how God chose him commissioned him into his work. And so Paul uses this as a little bit of a foundation now, and we transition into the command of Paul to Timothy. Now, I use the word command because it starts with a C and it sounded good in my um, outline, but it's not actually a command. Paul never stands back and says, do this because I told you so. That would be a more of an appropriate definition for a command. Instead, Paul always starts out, like in verse 3, I urge you. Paul is not here as a taskmaster for Timothy. He is not here as one who knows it all and is commanding Timothy to stick it out. Rather, he is a beloved father who sees the son in need, and he urges him to continue on in the ministry that has been put before him. Verse 3 reads, As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine. The goal of Timothy being here in Ephesus was that he might teach others within the context of the local assembly there not to teach false doctrine. And so it's because of this verse that it actually kind of makes me wonder if Timothy had written a letter to Paul. I have no way of backing this up, and so bear with me if you think that I'm wrong, but it seems as though Timothy, looking around at the congregation and understanding kind of the trials that were coming up, the false teachers who were taking the stage and communicating things that weren't true, that Timothy is sitting there nervous and and kind of afraid and not knowing what to do. And so it may have been something like this where he writes a letter and says, Paul, I don't know what to do here. What should I do? And if he sends that off, then it makes sense that this letter comes back to him. And Paul says, my son, as I urged you when I was leaving, I now urge you again, stay there. Continue fighting the good fight of the faith. Don't leave, stay put. And so I just imagine that, but I I can see it being true. And so Paul's desire is that Timothy stay in Ephesus and that he goes about teaching charging some that they teach no other doctrine. Now, the, the issue of people teaching false doctrine is as old as Christianity itself. 
In fact, what's going on here is that there are false teachers who arise up, most likely from the sect of the Judaizers, who believe that in order to be saved, you must be circumcised and you must keep the law. And so if we think back to Acts chapter 15, right at the very beginning of Christianity, there were these same teachers in Jerusalem who had gone out and had instructed people that they too needed to keep the law in order to be saved. And so it was Paul with Barnabas who went down to Jerusalem, to the Jerusalem council, where we hear from Peter who says that there are people who are teaching these things, but let's remember that Peter as a Jew, he says, we who were given the law couldn't even stand up under it. So why, now that the Gentiles are coming to faith, do we try and put them under the same burden? We shouldn't be doing this at all. Because we remember that salvation is through faith alone. And then Paul and Barnabas stand up, and they tell all these exciting stories of how they had reached into the Gentile population and had seen hundreds, if not thousands, of people come to faith. And then James stands up later and confirms all of it and begins to pen the letter that's going to go about telling all the churches what they had decided. And so all the way back to the very beginning of Christianity, there have been these teachers from the Jewish sect, the Judaizers, who come in and try and get people to keep the law so that they might somehow earn salvation. And so Paul is telling Timothy, stay there, stick it out, and teach the truth. Verse 4, not giving heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification, which is in faith. Always along with false doctrine comes these things, these teachings that cause disputes rather than godly edification. And I do believe that that should be one of the standards by which we judge what people say. Whether when they step down from the podium, they have caused more controversy than edification then we know that there is a problem here. And coming from an assembly background myself, I know that our tradition has been fraught with all sorts of meaningless arguments that have led to splits and divisions. You can trace it all the way back. And so instead, brothers, we ought to focus on the things that edify, the things that build one another up, those things that we can see and confirm in Scripture over and over again, those that are grounded in the gospel, those are the things that we should talk about. Those are the things that we should teach. Those are the things that we should emphasize, not these little doctrines that are causing divisions and, and cause people to get into arguments that kind of boil out of control. Fables and endless genealogies were the thing of the day back then. I wonder what it is today. They kind of, they cycle through. I was talking with some friends and they kind of, they threw out the idea of Calvinism and just how much controversy going into that too deeply can cause. And if we just stick to the truths of the faith, if we stick to the things that are essential to the doctrine of the gospel, we will be grounded and we will be able to grow together in godliness. And so the commandment, verse 5, that Paul is leaving is one of love. From a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith. Christians ought to be marked by love. That's what we read in another passage. They will know that we are Christians by our love. And so this is a multifaceted idea right here, and it kind of bridges the gap between the fables and endless genealogies and the, the idea of what the use of the law is. And so it can be taken a lot of different ways, but in here, 
we see that Paul encouraging Timothy to have a lifestyle that is marked by love. Timothy has the kind of unfortunate but necessary task of straightening out doctrine. And if he were to go about doing this in a way that was heavy-handed, how many people do you think he would hurt? But if he goes about this in the love of Christ, correcting gently, encouraging gently, he might actually win people over, and he might keep the body unified. But if he comes down, as Paul told me that you guys are wrong and you need to get out, how many people could he drive away? Not for edifications, edification. And so it comes, this love only comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And it talks about in verse 6 that some have turned aside from this. Having strayed, they turned aside to idle talk. Now, this idea here of having turned aside has two possible connotations. One is that when these guys who came in set their goal, they missed the goal altogether. The other idea is that they at one time had a goal set properly, but then they kind of strayed from it. And what we see here is more likely that they had just completely missed the goal. They were brought into the church at, and at the very onset, they started believing and convincing themselves that the way of salvation is by faith plus keeping the law. And so when I was in elementary school, I experienced something a little bit like this. Um, at that time, I was probably 10 or 12 years old, and my mom wrote me a note so that I could get off the bus at a friend's house. Now, at this time of my life, I only knew people by their first name, which kind of still true today, but back then, especially then, I had a good friend, his name was Matthew, and so my mom wrote on this little note, please drop Wills off at the Matthews, gave it to me, and I got on the bus, and so we're, we're driving, I left from school, and I go to my friend Matthew's house, because that's the name on the card. I get off at Matthew's house and walk up to his front door, and his mom is standing there, Wills, what are you doing here? She, of course, knew me, but was not expecting me. And I said, my mom said I was going to Matthew's house today. And she said, oh, okay, well, you're welcome to come in, but do you have a note or anything? Like, the, did the bus driver drop you off? Yes, here's, okay, it says, please drop wheels off at the Matthew's house. Now, there was a, a younger friend of mine a, a year behind me whose name is Braxton Matthews. His last name was Matthews. And so she was able to determine very quickly that I was only a couple miles off course, but I had set my sights completely wrong, and I had ended at the completely wrong destination. So she put me in her car, shouldered me over to the Matthews house, and I was back on track. And so we see here that these people had completely set their goal incorrectly. They didn't truly understand what the gospel was, and so no amount of effort, no amount of teaching or preaching they did was ever going to lead others to the truth of the gospel. They needed a complete course change. And so they strayed, they turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither which they say nor the things which they affirm. And so it's at this point that I will read verse 8, and then I want to talk a little bit about the law. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Wait a second. You just said a few minutes ago that the law can't cause salvation. So what is the potential good that the law can do? 
These people were preaching the, the law. They were doing their best with what they had. They wanted to teach the law. They also wanted to teach salvation. And so why were they so far off? Now we know from a handful of passages what the benefit of the law is. Romans chapter 3 tells us that the law helps us understand the knowledge of sin. It is by the law that we have knowledge of sin. That doesn't exactly sound like a good thing, but trust me, it is. Galatians chapter 3 says that the law was a tutor to bring us to Christ. And so the value that we see in the law, these lists of commandments that the Jews tried to live by, the value of that is to show us our complete inability to save ourselves. The law is a standard that is set way too high for us. It is set so far outside of our reach that there is absolutely no hope of us earning our salvation by keeping the law. All that the law is good for is in showing us our sin, our depravity, our bankruptcy before God. But the beautiful thing is that the law is also a tutor, and it takes us to Christ. It brings us before the Lord Jesus, and it shows us that we could do nothing, but it shows us that he has done everything. And so with that, these men, the best that they could do in their preaching was put someone under the thumb of the law. They could never bring about true godliness in their listeners because they did not know how godliness was formed. Godliness can only be formed by the Lord Jesus, by the indwelling of his Holy Spirit. And so, yes, the law can be valuable, but it is only valuable when it is put below the Lord Jesus, where we see him as the perfect keeper of the law, the one who eliminated it, the one who fulfilled it perfectly, and the one who offers us his righteousness through his death. And so the law is indeed good, but it has to be used properly. Are lawfully. And so verses 9 and 10 talk about a handful of groups of people that might more clearly see their need of a savior by the law. And so actually, I think there's, there's room for us in our sharing of the gospel to explain to people how they are unworthy or unable to keep the law. And in doing that, we are able to show people their sin, and we are able to show them the riches that are offered in Christ. And so anyone who is living in sin, anyone who is doing anything that is contrary to sound doctrine, Paul says, anything that is contrary to the glorious gospel, the blessed God, which is committed to his trust, should be shown the law, should be shown their inability to keep it, and should be shown to the Lord Jesus. Verse 11, I just want to make one comment before we go on. It's a glorious gospel. Have you experienced the gospel for yourselves? And if so, are you able to say with the Apostle Paul that it is indeed glorious? Has it changed your life? It's not only the glorious gospel, but it's the glorious gospel of the blessed God. If you have a relationship with the Lord, then you know him to be blessed. You know him to be worthy of all of your honor and all of your worship. Okay, so that was the command that Paul gives to Timothy. Now let's talk about the conversion. Paul, in verses 12 to 17, tells the story 
of his conversion, or he gives his testimony to Timothy. Now, this makes me go back to the very beginning where I mentioned that if there's anyone probably on the face of the planet that didn't need to hear Paul's testimony again, it's probably Timothy, someone who had traveled, someone who had heard him preach, someone who knew him intimately. In the same way that he knew he was an apostle, he also could probably tell you from memory out of rote how Paul got saved. But the beautiful thing that I want to show us here is that Paul was not ashamed of his testimony, and he was vocal about it, and he was willing to share it even with those who knew him best. And the reason I bring that up is because there are older men who I look up to who I don't really know their testimony. And the the way that they live now is a pretty holy and righteous life. And I admire that. But it kind of makes me think that they've probably always lived this way. They've probably always been saintly. They've probably always been this sanctified. And if that's true, so be it. But based on what I read here, I highly doubt it. And so... As we read through this testimony again, I want to encourage each of you to think back over what the Lord has done for you, how he has saved you, what he has saved you from. And instead of being ashamed of it, and instead of sweeping it under the rug, rather bring it out and share it with people. Share it with those who are following after you. You don't have to get into too many of the nitty-gritty details, but if you were saved from a life of sin... That is going to be more of an encouragement to the people following after you than a discouragement. Because they're going to look at their own lives and they're going to say, I can never be as holy as far along as you. But if you, in humility, were to say, you know what, Wills, son, daughter, I was actually saved from some pretty terrible things myself. You might have an opportunity to encourage them to endure to continue fighting sin so that they might get to the place where you are now. And so, briefly, we'll go through this. Paul says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. When Paul thinks about the glory of his testimony... One person's name comes to mind, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Because it was by faith in the Lord Jesus that got him saved, and it was the Lord Jesus who came to him at the first, showed him his sin, and forgave him of that sin, and commissioned him into the work. And he counted Paul faithful. This is kind of a strange thing, because when we think of Paul when his name was Saul, that man was quite faithful, but faithful in a terrible quest. His desire was to breathe threats and murder against God's people. But there was something that God looked down and he saw valuable in Paul's zeal. He says, there is a man who is faithful. There is a man who I can take and with a little changing, I can reset his trajectory and he can do great things for me. So I want to point out that faithfulness is an amazing trait to have in a younger person. It's an amazing trait to have in someone who is older So when God looks at you, does he see someone who is faithful? Faithful and willing to do this work. He saw that in Paul. He saw this faithfulness, and then he took him and he put him into the ministry. 
It is only God, really, who puts people into the ministry. We do see that at the hand of Paul and through others, we'll see later, that Timothy was commissioned to the ministry, but it was not without the direct blessing of God that Timothy and you and I are given the ministries through God. He says that he was formerly a blasphemer. This is terrible. He spoke against God. He spoke against God's people. He was a persecutor. His one goal in life in Judaism was to persecute as many Christians as possible. This is spitting in the face of God. This is taking the Lord Jesus Christ and trampling him underfoot. He was an insolent man. Another translation uses the word violent. The persecution wasn't just an audible hatred that he was spewing out, but he actually laid hands on people. He was the one standing there consenting to the death and stoning of Stephen. He was accountable for violence against the church of God. But he says that the reason that God is able to work with him is because he did it in ignorance. Now, sin done in ignorance is still sin, but sin done in ignorance is much more forgivable than that which is done blatantly after knowing the truth. So God saw this man who had been behaving zealously in ignorance for such a time, took him, showed him grace. The grace of our Lord Jesus was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Paul says in verse 15, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the chief. This is an interesting thing. Being in a, an assembly atmosphere, I almost, I almost think that Christ Jesus actually came into the world to save righteous people because that's what we find in our churches. We, we find people who are striving for holiness. And so when I read this, it makes me question, who did, who did God come to save? Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. The only way that you and I can experience salvation is by admitting that we are sinners. And so when you have an opportunity of sharing your testimony with those who are coming after you, be sure to mention the part where you know that you were a sinner. Because God did not save you as a righteous person. God saved you when you were dead in trespasses and sins. The same way he saves everyone else. And so Paul considers himself the chief of sinners, the greatest of all sinners, one who blasphemed, one who persecuted, one who violently opposed the work of Christ. He sees himself as the chief of sinners. But, however, it says in verse 16, it was for this reason that I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show all longsuffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Our Lord Jesus gets the greatest amount of glory from the greatest sinners. Let me say that again. The Lord Jesus gets the greatest amount of glory from the lives of transformed sinners. The greatest sinners give him the greatest amount of glory. And so we see Paul, he considers himself here a pattern. And so I've tried in the past using a sewing machine and trying to, to make a few things. I was not all that successful with it, but when, if you want to sew something like a shirt, you go to the store and you can buy yourself a pattern. If you're good enough, you can draw your own pattern, but you draw it and you put it onto the garment and you cut out and then you take two pieces and you can sew them together and that becomes your finished garment. And so when I see the word pattern here, Paul here was such a big sinner, 
His pattern was so large that anyone like him, equal to him or less, can fit within the extent of the mercy that he had been shown. His pattern was so big that God showed him mercy, he can show you and me mercy as well. And it was to show all long-suffering. We know from 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, that God is not slack concerning his promises, but he is patient. He is long-suffering, not desiring that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so Paul is a pattern here of the mercy that is available to all sinners, but also of the patience and long-suffering of God towards those who are outside. And he wants all to be saved. So we get to verse 17, and this is characteristic of Paul, but it's kind of, it comes out of nowhere. He just, he finishes up giving his testimony, and then he just thinks to himself, now unto the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Upon reminding himself of his own conversion, of his own story from death to life, all he is able to do is worship God. All he is able to do is provide this declaration of praise to the one who is glorious, the one who is worthy of glory. And it makes us think of the throne room of heaven in Revelation, where all day long, Year in and year out, there are those who are saying, glory and honor and power be unto the Lord. So you and I have the privilege here and now of returning this glory to the Lord Jesus. When we look back over our lives and we see the sin that we have been forgiven of, and we see the glorious mercy that has been demonstrated to us, then we too can be filled with this kind of a praise, ascribing God with the attributes that are due him and praising him. Now we get to the final section, which is the charge. Paul's charge to Timothy. This charge, thinking back that he charged some that they teach no other doctrine, I commit to you, son Timothy. It's a handing off of baton. It's saying, Timothy, you are indeed able to do the work that you have been given by the power of God. I am leaving you this charge. I can't do it myself, and I have trained you, and I have equipped you, and now, by God's help, you are able to do this. Stay there, son Timothy. And it says that by the prophecies previously made about you, you may wage the good warfare. There is a good warfare. We know from Ephesians 6, a letter to this same church, that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. We, as children of God, are also soldiers in his army, and we are encouraged to take up the full armor of God so that we can stand against the wiles of the devil. And so you and I all have a part in this, in standing firm for the truth, and God provides us with the equipment and the armor that we need and he will also provide it for his son here, Timothy. And he reminds him that it is by faith and having a good conscience, which is an echo of verse 5, where we see the same, which some, that Timothy is able to do this work here. Some have rejected the faith. Some have rejected having a good conscience concerning 
these things they have suffered shipwreck, of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. And so Paul tells Timothy that in this faith, there are some who have wandered away from it, have suffered shipwreck, and who have now been handed over to, this, to the devil. And, and I see this as a temporary thing. I do not see this as a handing over to the devil. I believe that these men likely had a real relationship with the Lord, but they'd been handed over for the short term so that they might learn. There's no sense in learning something if there's going to be condemnation in hell for all of eternity. And so Paul gave them a chance handing them over to the devil, and I don't know exactly what that looks like. It might just be being put out of fellowship for a time until they come to repentance and understand once again what the faith is all about understand who the Lord Jesus is and how they can't be mingling in works righteousness with the gospel. So when we look over this passage, I want to ask the question again, what, what kind of things does an older man in the faith talk about with his son in the faith? What kind of things would a, a mother, a spiritual mother, talk about with her daughter or spiritual daughter? Paul gives Timothy his calling card, explaining to him what his calling was as an apostle. Repeat that often. Repeat that to your children. Let them know who God has called you to be. Then he gives him the commandment, which is not actually a commandment. It's an urging him to remain at his post so that he might carry on the task to maintain pure doctrine at Ephesus. When Paul and Timothy have a conversation, it's most likely going to be about doctrine. You have an opportunity to talk about anything under the sun, I would encourage you to increase your conversations. Start talking more about good doctrine rather than the weather, rather than those other things that can divide. There's so much fodder for good discussion that can cause edification and growth among all of us. He shares his testimony, his conversion story, and then he charges him to continue fighting the good warfare. As a father, Timothy gently encourages his son, Timothy, to continue in the faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bless your name. We know that you are the blessed God and you are the one who has given us this glorious gospel. Father, we thank you for the reminder of how great your mercy is towards us. We thank you for the love that you have demonstrated towards us in sending the Lord Jesus to die for our sins, for bringing us into fellowship, for allowing us to be brothers and sisters here in the faith. Father, I thank you for raising up older men who have gone before, who are able to train and equip those who are following after. I pray, Lord, that you would give them the boldness and the encouragement to talk about things that are worthwhile, to share their testimony, to share who they are in Christ with those who are coming up after, that the younger might be encouraged, that they might catch the vision of what it looks like to serve you. Father, I pray for us who are younger, that we might look up to these older saints, that we might be willing to ask questions and seek out godly advice and counsel for how to live our lives and how to minister to you. So I pray and I ask these things in the name of our beloved Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.